Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. This is a special episode recorded at Necronomicon on the 19th of August 2017 when we teamed up with our friends of the Miskatonic University podcast for a special one-off live show before an audience. The show notes for this episode can be found at blasphemoustomes.com. Are you ready, Paul? It is a center for higher learning. Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Meow. It is a place with centuries of secrets in its shadowed halls. Play <laughs> regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu. This is where you have come to learn the mysteries of the cosmos. Horror films and horror gaming in general. Welcome Hello. to the Miskatonic University. Good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've got to be kidding <laughs> me right now. You're welcome. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Miskatonic University podcast. And the good friends of Jackson Elias. Okay, I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. I'm Matt Sanderson. I'm Chad Bouchard. Brian Murphy. I'm Keeper Dan. And I'm Mike Mason. Rewriter design. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> and this is a never-before-performed, degenerate, hybrid, <laughs> mashup, Franken-podcast about Call of Cthulhu and other weird horror gaming things. Coming up in a moment for today's topic, we'll be tackling the tough question, what makes your game Lovecraftian? But first, a short message from one conspicuously missing piece of this podcasting pie, our esteemed co-host, John Hook. In this section, we hear the disembodied voice of Keeper John, seemingly coming from a large, manually operated cardboard cutout, operated by two of the panelists. All right, here we go. Uh, oh, should I do a, like a pop, 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 so you might see it in the uh, in the wave bars? Okay, I'm gonna clap. Yeah. You know what? I might just I might just shoot from the hip. And I'm Keeper John, and I'm halfway to Yogath right now. So get me out of this brain jar. Let's see. Do I need to Do I need to be eating the mic? Or, I don't know. Hey, I wanted to say hi to all the attendees there at Necronomicon. Hello. And I wanted to pass on a big hello to our neighbors, Matt, Paul, Scott, from the good friends of Jackson Elias. 
And, of course, to my good friends, hello, Dan, Chad, Murph. I miss you guys. Wish I was there. Say the name of the uh, topic idea again, please. Hey, I heard you guys are going to be talking about what makes your game Lovecraftian. You know, one of the things that I try and do is I try and leverage off of the expectations of my players. A lot of my uh, Lovecraftian games that I run tend to be uh, more action-oriented, a little more uh, aggressive as far as facing off with the monsters and chase scenes and trying to race your way to the end of the mystery. Sorry, I'm, I'm just making a couple of notes here. I, I decided against uh, just trying to keep the outline in my head, so I'm making, making a couple of notes here. <laughs> so I try and leverage off the expectations of my players. So if they're uh, in a game of action, and that brings the tone of, of Lovecraft to the table because the players are supplying it. All I have to do is is run the game. Oh, oh God! All right, we're almost there. Getting out of range. Getting closer to Yagath. Help! Help! Cut. If I'd known you could do that, you know, that would have saved a lot of time on the plane. I would have just, you know. <laughs> Nobody told us this. And now we'll take a moment to set up and then we'll have a short history segment from Dr. Gerard on the topic of Eclipse Monsters. <laughs> well told. It's going to take a second. It's going to take a second. So while we're taking a second, who's looking forward to the eclipse? <laughs> and the great gate opening. <laughs> who's taking part in the ritual? Whatever you do, Matt, don't pull that. Is that a firework? <laughs> <laughs> it does look like a weird noise. It does look like a huge you do make dynamite. <laughs> you gave the dynamite to Matt. <laughs> and would you be my sun and moon? I would always be. <laughs> oh, I think you might. Uh, you could sit. You don't you have to go sit, down yeah. on one knee to say that. When I give you something, uh, just hold it. And when I want to take something away from you, just let oh. me do that. Okay. <laughs> um, and I Keeper Chad's talk is accompanied by many lovingly crafted props, which sadly the medium of sound fails to capture. From the Miskatonic University Department of History. Over the ages, there have been many monsters given birth by the phenomena of eclipses. Just, uh, there are too numerous to mention all of them and too many to count, but we are going to count about 17 of them in the next five minutes. Yes, I just said that, and go. 
The, in Norse mythology, you have the twin sky wolves, Hati and Skoll, who chase the sun and moon across the sky, and sometimes, every once in a while, they catch up. This counts as two. <laughs> in ancient Egyptian mythology, you had the chaos god and sky serpent, Apep, who wended across the sky and then was responsible for eating the celestial bodies. Also looks like a cat toy. <laughs> It, the Aztecs saw the sun and moon as balls being played in a sacred game of Talachtli. Talachtli is a game sort of like basketball, but you turn the hoop on its side and you kill all the losers. <laughs> Not the only way to play it. <laughs> and one of the players in the celestial version is Zolotl. And Zolotl is the patron deity of all things deformed. Any creature with any deformities, including they considered twins to be uh, deformed monstrosities. So when the Aztec priests saw an eclipse coming, they would gather all of the people with birth defects and the twins and the little people, and they would be sacrificed one after another to the god Zolotl so that Zolotl would be able to be better served in the afterlife by this sideshow in the sky. And, right. <laughs> and in ancient Persia, there were these little mischief fairy-like things with wings, and they were called peri, and they were considered to be burglars of the sun and moon during eclipse times. In uh, the Incas saw the passing of a shadow across the celestial bodies as a jaguar eating the moon, for example, which would then turn blood with red after digested. Which is not unlike the Bacanawa of the Philippines, which is like a, uh, like a fish, eel, dragon thing with four wings, a, lake, uh, a mouth the size of a lake that would then jump out of the sea and be attracted to the moon, uh, sort of like... Uh, the moon is attracting fish, right? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, and in uh, 4,000 years ago in ancient Mesopotamia, there were seven plague demon warriors. These count as seven, so we're jumping ahead a little. Uh, they were known as the Sebetu, and they were blamed for eclipses as well as all manner of diseases. Their very breath was considered to be deadly. Eclipses were seen as a sign of the gods' displeasure of the standing kings. Well, Mesopotamian kings knew a little bit about astronomy, so they could predict the eclipses. And when one was imminent, they would choose a condemned criminal and appoint them interim king. And the interim king would be wined and dined while the uh, the former king would go off and pretend to be a farmer in the countryside. And uh, then the, oh right, we have puppets of the king and the farmer here. <laughs> here you go. All right, here's the, here's the criminal, and here's the king, and then he would pass the crown over, we're playing paper dolls now, <laughs> to the, right, and so he's, playing, he's getting wine to dine and he's off in the countryside, and then the eclipse would happen, and this poor guy would get blamed for the eclipse and the bad omens that come with it, and he would be summarily killed, and uh, these guys were really good 
slowly execute, they sort of like perfected to an art, uh, the slow execution of criminals, and then the real king would be restored. However, there was a case in 1850 BC where uh, while he was off in the countryside, the king died of whatever reason, and the criminal actually was appointed permanent king. <laughs> so sometimes that happens. Oh, yes, and in uh, medieval Europe, it was considered bad form to procreate during an eclipse because your offspring might be monstrous. It might be uh, malformed. It might uh, end up being possessed by demons. And jump forward to the Renaissance in 1503 in a little town in Italy called Ravenna, there was widespread rumors of this uh, monstrous birth. And uh, this thing was said to have a horned head and the wings of a bat and uh, hermaphroditic genitalia, not pictured here in this 1890 uh, engraving, uh, a, talon on, uh, a talon on its left leg and a, an eye on its right knee. And it was uh, supposed to be the offspring of a nun and friar, uh, so unholy already. News got to the Pope. The Pope said, yeah, leave that thing outside to starve to death, which was common practice for uh, birth defect, uh, babies with birth defects at the time. <laughs> And it was, the news spread across Europe in various forms. There's, sometimes it's uh, angel wings, sometimes it's not. But it was often used as a symbol of corruption in the church. And it was later uh, retconned to be a uh, portend of the Protestant Reformation. So that's the Ravenna monster. <laughs> Probably. <coughs> Probably divorce is just trying to worry about it. So, ah <laughs> uh, yes, one more, only one. Okay, in 1503, Christopher Columbus found himself beached and stranded in Jamaica. The Taino residents who lived there welcomed Columbus and his crew. So nice. And they fed him and the crew, and, uh, but after about six months, things went kind of sour, as you might expect and the Taino were poorly treated, they were cheated, uh, lied to, and so they stopped bringing the food, the supply chain closed. And so Columbus hatched a scheme. He thought, ah, yes, uh, I have an almanac, uh, almanac on the ship, and so I can predict eclipses. And so he predicted the date and time of an upcoming lunar eclipse. He told the tribe's leader, his, uh, that uh, his God was very angry and would provide a clear sign of his displeasure by making the rising full moon appear inflamed with wrath. The lunar eclipse uh, and the red moon appeared on schedule. The Taino were, in fact, terrified and rushed to the crew with loads of food. And just as the eclipse was about to end, Columbus told his people, uh, told the people his God would pardon them. Everything fine. But then later, the Spanish enslaved the Taino and committed atrocities and genocide against them, and then foreign diseases from <coughs> Europe drove the tribe to near extinction. So, who is your monster now? Who is your monster now? Thunder. <laughs> 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 the 
these eclipses have inspired awe and terror across the ages. And science now tells us, of course, that there are no monsters up there. When we look, it must be shadows. But those shadows are sort of like the stories we tell ourselves, right? They, we do project things up there. And might I suggest that the things we project, those monstrous stories, perhaps they're not exactly things that come from our mind, but are things that merely pass through them. This lecture is sponsored by the Miskatonic University Department of History. Are you ready with our multimedia performance now, Scott? Fucker. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> And now, for something completely different. <laughs> okay, so the main topic of today's uh, conversation uh, of battling podcasts is the, um, what is it again? <laughs> what makes your game love? There we go. What makes your game Lovecraftian? You had one job, Mike. One I had one job. <laughs> I failed. Okay, so... What makes your games Lovecraftian? So, we are split after a lengthy debate um, the other night. Uh, it was split into four categories uh, that would be discussed across the, uh, the podcasts. And uh, the first one is setting an era. And uh, the, uh, the lead, I'd like to ask Dan to, uh, to talk about setting an era. Of course, our most common era that we, uh, we do our Call of Cthulhu in, 1920s. That's the one that it was originally published in. It's different enough from our modern to make it fun and exciting gameplay, but familiar enough that you don't have to spend all of your time describing every single detail. And that's when Lovecraft, you know, lived. So it, it makes it very fun for that. Um, I don't really see it being essential, though. You know, Lovecraftian mythos, elder horrors, well, they're way before anything that uh, we know of. So, Matt, uh, mm -hmm. do you think that there's any particular era considerations that have to be looked at as far as? Um, I was having a look, because this is going to come from very um, how you view time and what eras really are attra uh, attractive to you in which to set a story. Um, when I was thinking of um, the common times when stories would be set, a bit like as, um, as Dan said, um, thinking of the 1920s, the common periods, um, whether it be gaslight, whether it be the 1920s, whether it be the modern day, all have a similar thing in common that just on the horizon, the shit is about to hit the fan. You've got the Gaslight Era, where the First World War is just coming over the horizon. The 20s, you've got the uh, Wall Street crash and the Depression just over the horizon. And today, yeah, nuclear apocalypse, you never know. It's something where there's always a shadow that you know is coming, that it's just creeping up towards you. And it's this, this sense of inevitability and something uh, terrible is about to happen. That's a, yeah, that's a good way of 
looking at it, it, it helps to kind of inform the general atmosphere. Hmm. You know, and then we've got, apart from the time frame, there's the setting. You know, we most commonly do everything in our whole New England location because, well, that's, again, leading to the source material of Lovecraft stories. Again, we've got a whole lot of source books for other places that, you know, we just love it when the source book comes out for a place we don't know anything about. And so that's another fun aspect because it could be anywhere on Earth. It could be a future game off of Earth. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, you could almost look at something like The Expanse as being kind of Lovecraftian. There's a whole lot of really dark, nasty, weird cosmic stuff going on in there that uh, I've really fallen in love with. <laughs> Um, anything that you're thinking of as far as setting that might be a, a specific? Yeah, um, again, looking at kind of connective tissue, going back to the root of Lovecraft stories, one of the main themes that keeps coming up, or at least a commonality between um, settings, is isolation, both geographically and socially. Um, you'll take, for example, the name of the city in the middle of the desert, um, say, hundreds of miles from anywhere, one guy on his own, you know it's going to end, um, end badly. And then um, socially as well, if you think of um, the likes of the horror at Red Hook and to a lesser extent the Haunter of the Dark, where you've got a disconnect between communities and ethnicity and so forth. It's that feeling that you are out of your comfort zone, that help is a little bit too far away, and it's pretty much just you that's got to deal with a problem, and you're going to fail. <laughs> yeah, and the horror itself also feeds greatly on an isolation sensation, because if you're in a large group, you feel just more like you've got support mm -hmm. and you take away that support structure of other people and you're uh, going to have a lot more of a uncomfortable feel you know we we can't go to other people they either won't believe us or maybe they're in on the side that we're trying to get away from <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> really <laughs> Well, the next theme that was discussed was themes. The theme is called themes. I'm still trying to get that one around my head. <laughs> so perhaps, um, <laughs> perhaps Scott can elucidate. Um, well, there are certain things that, or certain elements we see come up over and over again in Lovecraft, uh, certain ideas, certain concepts which probably pin down more uh, about what makes his stories feel like his stories than you know, the monsters themselves or the setting or you know, any other factor, really. Jump in any time you want. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think some of the common themes would be uh, cosmic horror or the, 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 the sort of obliteration of, of uh, importance of humanity, the nihilism, uh, the nothing inside the nothing. And I was thinking those are hard to gamify on the, on the face of it because you're talking about agency in a game and, and, you're, and the theme is the lack of agency that we have. But uh, one of the ways I was thinking that one can is, is to make it personal, to make it a personal loss of faith, a personal loss of trust in institutions, uh, 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 you know, pull the pillars out as they are uh, from from somebody's support system, in, in a way. Um, and that, that 
you experience the cosmic horror and the, uh, uh, the nihilism by having your character experience that. Um, and that's a way, a doorway in for your players. Yeah, and I think a big part of it as well is I mean, you can make the characters feel very small in the universe without necessarily making them feel completely helpless. Um, I, the, the, the things that, I don't know, personally I find creepy about cosmic horror are the idea you know, of, of sort of infinite space and our, our place within it and the fact that you know, we are like you know, plankton swimming around in the sea and there are whales out there. Um, and the idea of deep time. You know, we, we think of our lifespans as being relatively brief maybe, but you know, we, we think of everything in the scale of human time. Um, but you know, we're, we're just you know, one tick of the clock on, on an eternal calendar. And when you look at our place in that, that you know, just the history of even our planet, let alone the universe, you know, our lives are nothing. Absolutely. I remember taking an astronomy class in, back in the 90s. And um, the first thing the teacher did is play a very large screen video of scales of the Earth. And you started with a, a yard and pulled back to you know a mile and here's a house and it, there drops the planet and you go and go and go. I, I've been thinking what, how great it would be to show a video like that as a character insanity result. Uh, this is what you see. Yes. You, you just notice the scales of the universe and that's all you need. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the effect that would have. I, the th I, I know it came from a comedy series, but the thing I keep coming back to when I, I think about the effect that this has on someone is the total perspective vortex from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, the idea that you are suddenly given not just an academic understanding, but a very visceral understanding of what your true place in the universe is. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any of us could survive that. Sure. Um, and there are other themes that I thought uh, in Lovecraft that I think are less explored in gaming. And uh, one of them is tainted bloodlines. It does mm -hmm. happen, but that's... Lovecraft seems to be always fascinated with the sudden realization that you are not what you thought you were, um, and that you're something that you re that you know are, you reviles you, <laughs> that, that you that you think is horrible, um, and and that that because it's hard to write that in a scenario because the characters, uh, the PCs themselves individually would go through that. Um, I don't know. I don't know why it hasn't been explored more. Oh, but give it time, Chad. We're, we're working on a campaign called The Poison Tree at the moment, which is exactly that. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, well, a little advertisement <laughs> for something called The Poison Tree that hasn't been released yeah. yet. Uh, but, uh, imminent? Um, yeah, man, a year or so, maybe. Okay. Did you just violate NDA for... No, no, uh, we've okay. been talking about it for years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, and uh, just the, yeah, the rats in the walls, uh, you know, even Innsmouth, you just have these moments of realization. I'm not sure, I, I feel like maybe even in your own game, mechanically, you could have sand loss at a certain point lead to that realization and have a trigger, right? That, uh, because that's kind of how it happens in the story sometimes. It's like, oh, now I know. There's not great solid evidence. It's It's like a sort of, uh, vertigo of realization. Well, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, like you say, it's almost flipping the sand loss on its head there. It's the fact that, mm -hmm. you know, the, losing that sanity 
stops your, your mental barriers, it stops you being able to lie to yourself. And in a lot of respects, that's what San Loss and, and Cthulhu Mythos are. In. <laughs> They're this, this creeping realization of what reality is. Um, and yeah, the, the idea that that is internalized as well as externalized is, is particularly horrible. Um, yeah. and, and I think that leads on very nicely to you know, the, the next thing, which is, you know, uh, this is something I remember talking to Paul about years ago, um, where, well, actually, I think you ended up crediting Lucy, your wife, with this, but trying to sum up what Call of Cthulhu and, and you know, Lovecraftian horror was about in a single word, and the word that Lucy chose was revelation. Mm. Um, the fact that, you know, it, we see it in the Call of Cthulhu, the fact that you start off with all these disparate inf bits of information, you know, seem to be unrelated and every now and then someone will hear a word or, you know, a concept that ties in with something else and you gradually start piecing it together and you finally reach that moment where you see how the jigsaw comes together and it will never come apart again no matter how much you want it to. Indeed. Yeah, you and I have been sat around in deep conversation for about two hours trying to get to the nub of it. My wife's like, isn't it about revelation? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Which Just was one word. something of a revelation, really. I've got another theme I could oh. throw out there that is the Chagner Fong uh, uh, in the room, which yeah. is... Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is xenophobia. Well, yeah, yeah, fear, fear of the other in general, yes. Fear absolutely. of the other is yeah. a horror constant almost, right? Yeah. Um, isn't, it, isn't it akin to fear of the unknown? Yeah, but... To some but, degree. Oh, but yeah. I'm gonna make it uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely, it comes, it, it, it leads, it, that's where it ends. But um, I really want to propose or, or open it up. Is it possible to use xenophobia as a theme sensitively and um, yeah. intelligently in a game and sort of draw it out and, and examine it and, and also have fun with it. Well, I think, I think one thing that's, that's happened a lot in weird fiction recently is the way that a number of, of current writers have addressed Lovecraft's racism or the racism that's in his fiction and used it as a plot element and used it as a, a form of horror, but by twisting it around, instead of you know, looking at it from the point of view of, you know, these people aren't like me, they scare me. It's, you know, these people are scared of me because I'm not like them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the dynamic that causes. And that sort of plays back into what Dan and Matt were talking about before about, you know, social isolation and that leading to horror. Uh, it's part and parcel of the same thing. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly it, it's a way of adding powerlessness and... Uh, weirdness into a game, well, social weirdness into a game, um, but, you know, while, while ramping up the horror of social isolation there. And yeah, yeah I, I think you could do something very powerful with that. Um, you know, I, I didn't do it on a, you know, from a racial point of view, but I tried very much to sort of address that with a, a scenario I wrote sometime back called Bleak Prospect, mm. which was, you know, exactly about that. And I think it would be possible to do something, you know, very much along those lines, you know, using different racial and social groups. Yeah, I think if there's a Twilight Zone episode that I'm blanking the name of, where the reveal at the end oh. is that everyone else has it's disfigured faces. The monsters. Yes. That revelation that you are the outsider uh, could be a very interesting reveal. Yeah, the revelation could be a great reveal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the the other thing I wanted to uh, uh, mention about xenophobia is, is um, examining yourself. What 
you otherize or what you mm. fear as outside yourself, what, what your uh, stereotypes are, and, and pulling those out and making metaphors out of them or monsters out of them, yeah. that may be a good source to really think. I'm going to bring up a safe, relatively safe one, which is that wealth has always, I've has sort of grown up uh, sort of not despising wealth, but you know, wealthy people that, that talk about sort of class, um, class distinctions, being very conscious of them. And that is something in myself that I know is actually a terrible stereotype. I run up against it all the time of, of sort of disliking someone based on wealth from the start. Yeah. And um, I think that's a very interesting place to start. I know it's wrong. But, uh, but you know, it reminds me of that concept of, in comedy of, of punching up and punching down. Mm. Um, so, you know, the idea that, you know, uh, for a long time, comedy did involve punching down. You know, the, you, you'd find, you know, disadvantaged social groups, uh, you know, minorities who, you know, you, you'd apply stereotypes to and you'd, you'd base humor upon that. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, comedy from a position of power. And sometime, I think, mainstream comedy in the last 30 or 40 years flipped. And mm -hmm. It went from punching down to punching up. Mm -hmm. uh, and it became about critiques of power and wealth and, and privilege. And, yeah, I think there's certainly a lot of that you can see in, in, you know, in horror as well. That it's, it, you know, in Lovecraft's day, I mean, Lovecraft's horror was definitely punching down. Yeah. And I think you know, mm. you're seeing in weird fiction a lot more now that it's punching up. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, to the third um, concept, theme, or <clears throat> basis for remarks, uh, we look at monsters. And um, Paul and Murph are going to talk about this, but uh, Murph, maybe you'll take the lead on this. Sure, I think when we talk about Lovecraftian monsters in general, um, you've got to break it into two categories, really. You've got deities, and then you have actual monsters that we use in the game. So when we talk about the deities, we have this grand indifference that in the game we know that they have cults and that cults are wanting them, but really it's the people who want to be noticed by these deities. You know, and they want that attention. But well, why are you nodding at me so much? Because you just mentioned cults, and I think you're, you're uh, baiting me for a fight. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those trigger words that we have to be careful of. Uh, pistols at dawn. <laughs> anyway, no, yeah, no worries. So you have this indifference that is always there and prominent in the deities that is, we can't understand, and it, and it frightens us in general. But when we talk about the monsters, the monsters in particular, and the deities for that matter, they end up attacking not just our physical self, but they, they blast our minds apart. You know, it's an actual attack on our soul or what we consider to be our, our utmost inner self. As opposed to just killing us, they completely destroy our mind and rip us apart so that we can't function as a normal person. And that I think on its own is more akin to a Lovecraftian monster than any other in fact, you end up with like mind flares in D&D, which are known as being Lovecraftian, and it's not, it's not by accident that they are, you know, Cthuloid by appearance, and they destroy people's minds on, you know, I mean, that's what they do. And so I think that that's the primary thing when we're talking about specifically monsters, is that there's some sort of insanity mechanism that's going to destroy you mentally before you're actually hurt physically. 
I've seen in other places, in, in other games and so on, who, which, are, which aren't striving to be Lovecraftian, but you know, they're striving to do what they do. And sometimes the premise is, this game's not about monsters, because the real monsters are the people. <laughs> they're us. No, they're not, they're Shoggoths, right? <laughs> Forget the people, because the, the, people the people in the Lovecraftian universe that, that um, you know, we could think of as monstrous, they're, like we've talked about, tainted bloodlines. So discover they're not quite human. Or they are possessed, as in the shadow out of time. Uh, or they're possessed by, you know, a relative, which is kind of weird. Uh, or they have been come corrupted by magic, like Old Man Waitley. But they're no longer really just humans. They're not, they're not fulfilling the kind of human agendas of greed and uh, envy and things like that. So they're not serial killers. Well, they might be serial killers, but that's, you know, they're not, uh, they're not fulfilling that kind of agenda. Other than that, we have, you know, the, the complete monsters that when we do interact with them, as Murphy's saying, they, they have that corruptive influence on our minds. So it's not so much about hit points. I mean, it is about hit points in part, but it's more about, the, that's why it's more about the sanity points, right? So we're striving to get to the root of what makes your game Lovecraftian. So I think if you take, you know, if you think, or oh, makes it not Lovecraftian, I'm playing D&D, &D, and there are goblins. Well, they're not very Lovecraftian, all right? Why aren't they Lovecraftian? Because you just physically fight with them. They don't really, uh, they, may, they may have spells and things, but they're not, they're not eating away at, I mean, it, is sanity core to Lovecraftian gaming? Is the, the erosion of sanity core to Lovecraftian gaming? I, I mean, I feel we've talked around a number of things here. What makes your game Lovecraftian? Um, but you know, when you pair it all away, what's left? What's what? What is? You know, I, we, we've we've all you know come up with scenarios, and and you have too in the audience, I'm sure. But when is it Lovecraftian? When is it not Lovecraftian? I mean, it doesn't have to be in the 1920s. It doesn't have to be a taint in the bloodline. It doesn't have to be uh, obviously period or an era. It doesn't have to use any monsters from the canon. Yeah, that's what I'm interested in is, is just when you strip all that away, what are you left with? I think whenever we're talking about a play in an actual game, it's, if we take it away from just Call of Cthulhu, which has the insanity mechanism already built in, it's a secondary, well, we'll say primary stat in this case, but it's there in the mechanics, it's built in. And then you end up with another game that's built around the actual madness, like something like uh, Don't Rest Your Head, where the more crazy you go, the more powerful you become. You could argue that it's Lovecraftian, but at the same time it's not, because it's not, the, the madness is actually part of what is driving you forward, as opposed to what's degrading you from a normal human being. You know what I mean? So, yeah, and it's those monsters that kind of, it's, it, that, yeah, it's that interaction with that, with that, that Lovecraftian world. That, yeah, it's the, the, it's the grand kind of indifference. Like it's when you, you see Cthulhu and you go ape crazy, and it's not just the fact that you see it, it's the fact that you realize that he doesn't know you, that there's no interaction there, that you're going to die anyway, and there's nothing that anyone can understand about it. And if you do get that glimpse, let's say, of like Azathoth and you know, the pipers in the middle of nowhere, then your mind is just blown open because it, it opens these vistas that you're not normally seeing, that you don't have access to. And that, I think, is what makes it Lovecraftian. 
it's not just that it's eating away at your psyche, it's that it's expanding like the revelation that Scott was saying. You know, it's, it's that revelation that opens you up and you cannot fathom what you see. But, and as a, as a keeper, as a GM, that's kind of... You're not, uh, whoa, whoa, what's this? You, you kind of, isn't that what you're uh, talking you're gonna be about? Here. I mean, you're allowed to speak, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to break the thing. Aren't, aren't you kind of... Isn't it about the kind of erosion of the sense of self? You and see, you see the monster, oh, yeah, exactly. and you question your being. Right. Yeah? And, and, that's yeah, what, and your, loss of, your loss of self. That's what I'm kind of like trying to sum it into, yeah. I mean, I, I just wanted to come back, if I may, to something uh, uh, Murphy was saying about, about the deities and how different they are and how interact, any interaction with them is, is kind of corrupting and the, the, whole, the whole deal with that. But as, a, as a person running a game, I want to kind of think, what do these things want? And that's the thing I struggle with most. Uh, so we've been, you know, we, we, we talked, Mike announced this morning, we're putting out the revised Master and Arth tab. And within that, there's, there's a discussion and um, exposition about Null Arthotep's agenda. And it's like, well, what would be his agenda? Why, why are these things interacting with us? Um, I mean, I can see the interaction with deep ones. Well, I don't want to see it, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I can buy into that with ghouls and deep ones. But, but with the gods, uh, I mean, you know, we were talking about, you know, what Nalathotep might want and how he's interacting with, uh, with the people in the world. And see, I, I think that on its own is, is the wrong question. You can't understand what Nalathotep wants. But how do you then use that in a scenario? How do you use it? You, 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 you can explain it easily. You can say, Nihilithotep is an asshole. And so because of that, he does whatever the hell he wants in order to get ahead. But, just, but why, would, why would he bother them. interacting with humans and giving them things I to do? I don't know, and well, I don't no, have to know. All right. Yeah. That's the I know, and if you want to know, buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> but is it, isn't Nihilithotep sort of representative of a chaos? It's sort of a trickster god, really, and wants well, He's a the... messenger as well. That's the, yeah. that's the other thing. It's, he's supposed to be this messenger thing. The, an the answer, genuine genuinely is all of these things right it's blowing in the wind really yeah yeah shits and giggles well i mean what i'd say is what i say is i mean you've got i mean, this is from a fairly cynical point of view you've got the get out that the you know these gods are ineffable they are beyond human understanding um in the alithotep's motivations are beyond understanding so that gives you the freedom to use them in whatever damn way yeah. you want and just retrofit the explanation afterwards exactly. you don't have to know what the explanation is the, is the keeper mm. he does what he does for his own reasons and we including the keeper will never actually understand them no, nor do you have to have near, nor does there have to be a there there i mean it, you could it could be an empty black hole literally or figuratively and, and where there's no intention knowable the keeper doesn't have to know it but you do have to be specific in game i think about somebody wanting something well ripples you know yeah from, but, but but just remember this you're never going to be in a position as the the players to really ask Nalathotep, why are you, why are you doing this? It's the same concept of you don't ask. Occasionally you might be. You don't ask, you know, you deal with the consequences of the avalanche. You don't get to the point where why did the avalanche happen? You're dealing with the consequences and that's what you're dealing with in a campaign like Masks of Nalathotep. And the okay, there may be an opportunity where you get face to face with that being 
Is that really the question you're going to ask? Or are you running and screaming? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think like, people, if, even if these gods do want something, are people going to understand it and agree about it? I mean, you have to look at the real world, and there's lots of religions out there, and they don't seem to agree on what God wants, and they're running around killing each other over it. Uh, so, you know, if we've got fictional cultists doing that, that seems just fine. And, you know, what the, the humans divine as being, well, divine, that doesn't have to be right. But I think you're misunderstanding that we don't have to have a reason for why the deity does what it does. We might have to have a reason for why the cultists do what they do. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Right? They, they might so not be right, but they, they, I think as a keeper, I want to have an agenda, particularly for my human uh, cultists uh, and the things, you know, for the, for the plot. I want to have a, an agenda that I'm trying to move forward for those, um, protag those antagonists. Otherwise, I'm, I'm feel a bit lost at sea. But for the human agenda, you can make it something as mundane as, I mean, it can be, be a very immediate agenda. It doesn't have to be a yes. grand scale. So you can say, oh, they want to get that, and that is the agenda, and that's all you have to worry about as a keeper, because they're just NPCs anyway, and they're cultists on top of that. So, I mean, it, I mean, to be fair, in a game, we don't flesh out all the cultists. Oh, my God. You can't <laughs> another show, I guess. <laughs> There's a three-hour discussion about that. Unfinished. No, I, th I think you're both saying the same thing slightly differently. Yeah. That you, the, you know, the, 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 the reasonings behind the, the thought processes of the Elder Gods is beyond comprehension. There's no need to try and comprehend it. They just do stuff. Humans, on the other hand, will interpret in many different ways what they think the elder thing or God will want from them. Often that's something that will benefit them as well. Yeah. Exactly. And, it's no and, that's, and that's very easy because we understand human emotions and we can apply them to the narrative and the, and the logic and the plot of the game. And that's the bit that you, yeah, you want to do. But why, do they, why does one person see a burning book and think one thing, and another person sees exactly the same thing, and think another thing. That's life. And that's what you're trying to put into the game. And I think you're right about downscaling the attentions. It's more, it's easier to understand uh, somebody wanting a spell because they need more money and they're desperate than it is to understand world domination on a human level even. So I, I think it's a good idea to think about very specific intentions that they can achieve and that they're working toward hard that you can then try to interrupt. It's a good, it's a good little um, um, task to, to do you know, with yourself is to you know, line up the different uh, great old ones and think uh, as a human, uh, based on what I think I know about them, if I was to worship, which one would I prefer to worship? You know, mm -hmm. do I want, you know, do I, do, do I think, uh, what am I, what, do I want eternal life? Do I want power? Do I want wealth? Do, you know, what, what do I want? Which one do I think is going to give that to me? Because the answer is, it doesn't matter, but, but I mean, that's, no, that's, you, you are now a cultist. It's not that's an accident that there's point, 30 different you. cults for Cthulhu. You know, each one is after something slightly different, and they're all basically worshiping the same thing, but maybe different aspects of the same thing. And they, they each see it individually different yeah. because they're human. We can only catch that little slice of what it actually is. 
know, they're all interpreting the dreams they might receive from Cthulhu completely differently. Even if he's broadcasting the exact same message worldwide, they're all going to pick out something that they think is relevant that's different. Or if it's not all the time, he's double speaking to everyone in the room. So, I mean, he's saying the same, he's right. speaking at once, but six different conversations are happening at the same time. I, I love the idea of a game in which you have cultists, all, all Cthulhu cultists all receiving different dreams, and they think they're all part of the mm -hmm. same, you know, they're in a cult, a club, who all receives dreams, but they all want a different thing, mm -hmm. and they all see a different thing. I think that would be a lot of fun, too. Well, well, Why don't you give them all the same dream, but emphasize yes. different parts of the dream? Yeah. So they all take a different message. Absolutely. But when they're saying, well, what dream did you have? Like, oh, I had the same dream. Right. So they think they're doing the same and thing, they but they're off. not. Right, and they say, oh, we're, on, we're all on the same page, right? And they go off and do one drops a bank, and one you know, goes and bears uh, monstrous children. But, but I think there's a fundamental mistake there with thinking uh, in terms of the gods' agendas and how cults would serve them, because if these gods and their motivations and even the way they think their very existence is beyond human understanding, then they become almost like these Rorschach tests for the cultists. The cultists will see what they want there um, and, and apply their own you know, base desires uh, to that. The gods stop becoming a religion and start becoming a pretext for, for whatever the hell it is they want. But they isn't that exactly what happens. But yes. Oh, time, exactly. exactly. Oh, yeah, a yeah. group of cultists, but typically there's a head cultist or a high priest or whatever of that cult that has the more personality to bring oh. all of these different people seeing the same vision but in slightly different ways together under one focus. Oh, sure. So what you end up with is that guy. That guy is the one who's leading. Watch it, I can't see. That guy is the <laughs> That guy's motivations are the ones that you have to come up with in game terms. The rest Absolutely, of them are just but, it doesn't matter. But it, it, that doesn't mean that the motivations are anything to do with what you know, anything in the mythos might want. Right, no, not at all. It has yeah. nothing to do with it. No, you have to, you have to start with the premise, you, you cannot answer that question. Well, we seem to be very focused on uh, human cultists here. Do we need human cultists to make a game Lovecraftian? I would say not. Uh, no. So have we, have we dug down to what makes the game Lovecraftian yet? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I, Let's move on to the fourth piece, as it were, which is generally, which is the catch-all for anything else, yeah? yeah. Yes. So, how do you bring the Lovecraft? Yeah. So, <laughs> so Chad, how do you bring the Lovecraft? I wrote that way in such big terms. <laughs> I don't remember. What were you saying? You were, you mentioned what the fourth, all right, is that enough? <laughs> when we met, there was a lot more words about that. <laughs> but that's what you wrote down. So that's what I wrote down. Yeah. That's two days ago, and you want me to remember what I said two nights ago? But yeah, it's more generally, uh, how do you bring Lovecraft into your game, yeah. not just monsters or theme? Yeah, or no, yeah not just monsters, what? not just theme, mm -hmm. not just his concept. What, what is it that makes, you, know, you can, around the table, that you can get a bunch of players, just walk away, going like, oh, that was just, that really captured it. That was, that was it. That was, you know, that was Lovecraftian or whatever you want to term you want to use. Um, and there's not one answer to that. Right. It is, yeah. it is, it exactly. is a, 
Yeah, I mean, we've talked about all these different elements so far, and I think that's the answer, that, you know, Lovecraft stories are made up of a whole bunch of elements. I mean, there are certain themes that run through them, there are certain commonalities, but there is not one pure thing that identifies a story or a game as being Lovecraftian. Uh, it's, it's a series of tools you can use. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other chagnaphon in the room is that uh, the word Lovecraftian is kind of crappy. It's it's incomplete. It's uh, it it covers an entire canon of work, so, and he he explored many many things. So there's quite a bit of Lovecraft work that, for our meaning, perhaps isn't actually Lovecraftian. Is that what we're saying? I mean, well, I, I would say that. You so, would? Yeah. I think for for the Call of Cthulhu like game, his gothic, his early gothic stories. Yeah. And well, the, yeah. Or Herbert West or yeah. Yeah. Herbert West the White totally or, you know, the <laughs> What are you talking about, man? Mm -hmm. Because, because I'm contrarian, right? I'd probably try to make something gothic and call it Lovecraftian well, based on it. I think it, we're yeah. sort of falling back to the whole question of, you know, uh, you know, what makes art art? It's what artists do. What makes a game Lovecraftian? It's what a Lovecraftian GM runs. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah. Was, it, was it John W. Campbell, I think? Um, yeah, there was one of the great SF editors who was asked to define what science fiction was. And he said, science fiction is what I read when I feel like reading science fiction. Yeah. Um, and and you, you can sort of apply that to Lovecraftian. And this yeah. is the same for gaming. I mean, Call of Cthulhu, well, I can't really speak for Call of Cthulhu, but Call of Cthulhu doesn't say on the front cover, you know, to play Lovecraftian-style games. It doesn't say that. It just says to play in the worlds of H.P. Lovecraft. That's what it says. Yeah, but our topic today, right? That might be your topic. So, Mike, what you're saying is we've just wasted everyone's time yeah. for the last hour. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're used to that. I mean, <laughs> no, there is a conception that you know to, to, to do to, to you, you're only doing it right if your game is Lovecraftian. You're only doing it no. right if it's if it's that. gritty and dark and, <laughs> yeah. and painful and axed and psychologically oh, damaging. Everyone, everyone you noticed. Know. <laughs> You know, that, that, there, there, there is a snobbery within gaming that, you know, oh, you know, um, you're not doing it right. Yeah, right. I think there's a, you know. And I think we... there's a real snobbery. And I think, you know, and I, I see this because I see, you know, um, different systems try different mechanisms and, and they market themselves by saying that they do it better and they different do it right. Different systems. But they come, they we know become, who you're talking I'm about. Talking about anyone <laughs> <in particular. laughs> is there something you want to get off your chest, Mike? No. <laughs> But I think that if you become more focused on one aspect, you know, if, you, if, you, if we were to have narrowed the focus of Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game, down to a more, uh, you know, what we might have perceived as a more pure Lovecraftian game that was going to produce more Lovecraftian stories, it would have become more one-dimensional. And I think the beauty of the, the game is that, you know, when we were running scenarios at comms early on, Mike, you, yeah. you know, I was writing scenarios for you then just for convention games. And it was like, well, you know, I've got this concept in my head and I write the scenario and it's kind of a bit creepy. And then I kind of think of, oh, actually, let's say, you know, the, uh, the great race of youth did it. And that, okay, that, that ties into a bit of a Lovecraftian theme. But it was kind of Lovecraftian themed already. Um, but the, the oh. game is very encompassing. You, you've got any horror kind of trope game, it kind of fits into Call of Cthulhu, I think. And, and I, think it's, I think that's been there since the beginning with Call of Cthulhu, sure. because if, I mean, if, if any, if, I was about right? to say, if anyone's ever played any games with Sandy Peterson, 
his games aren't necessarily particularly Lovecraftian. He likes monsters, he likes riffing on horror films that he's enjoyed, but um, yeah, the few games I've played with him, there have been almost no elements from Lovecraft in there. Because that morning, when I was staying at your place, Mike, and I came downstairs and you were like sat listening to music, and we kind of looked at each other and said, you know, we, we were talking last night about, you know, how to make the game more about, you know, H.P. Lovecraft and so on, and we are like, no, we should try and make it more like Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game, because that's, that's the thing we're, we're doing. Yes. Uh, Scott, when we talked a little bit about theme, you, you were mentioning, uh, you know, what if you take out all the monsters? Mm. Uh, that was a really cool idea, and I tried to put that through my brain. No monsters at all, no supernatural. Oh, well, well not, not even, I mean, I guess that, that would really be pushing it, but... Um, you know, going back to those ideas of cosmic horror and deep time and so on, um, you know, it's, it's something that, that sort of plays up people's insignificance in the universe or it plays up the way that other people react to it and the horrors. You know, let, let's say for argument's sake, sorry, this is just off the top of my head. You could do almost something like, say, Seven, um, where you've got the John Doe character in it, who in this case is just someone who, you know, Maybe he's read the Necronomicon, or maybe he's had a vision or whatever. He hasn't encountered any monsters, he hasn't met a deity, but he's had this insight into what the universe is truly like. Uh, and this has led him to perform horrors. This is, but, you know, perhaps he is trying to you know, rob the world of its meaning or reinvent the world in a way that makes, you know, is trying to restore sense to him, or, or that he's just been driven to acts of violent nihilism. Uh, whatever it is, I, I think that's still fundamentally Lovecraftian. It's still getting to those those themes at the heart of it. Yeah. But there, there's no monsters and there's no magic in there. So a cult simulation game is what you're saying. <laughs> well, actually, you know, thinking about it, even a character like the Joker from Batman. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, at his heart, he's almost a, a Lovecraftian antagonist. Mm. You know, he, he's seen the joke at the heart of existence, and you know, the, the, this has led him to horror. Mm. If, uh, so if, if, if we, let's just play with that one second. If the Joker, let's just say, is a cultist, cult leader in some way, which, which um, god does he worship? Which, which one is the one that personifies him best? Neophytep, without a doubt. Trickster god. He's a trickster god. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think it matters. Any, any feedback from huh? the audience on that? Why? Can we have a vote? Is he Neophytep? Okay, is he Azathoth? Or, or, is he, or is he the king in yellow? Honestly, <laughs> it doesn't make a damn, but it's yeah. interesting. Well, bear with this. Nihilist answer. <laughs> There's also a direct relationship between Nyarlathotep and Azathoth anyway. One serves the other, and beats a, one beats the head of the other one with his stick. It's, Aren't uh, they the same yeah. thing? Yeah, they're two sides of the same coin. Big contribution. That's another. Really? Huh? First, the coin means two-faced, and that's a right. different guy that we're not on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, you're talking about Azathoth and Nyarlathotep's motivations with great authority, Matt. Do you, do you have special insight? <laughs> 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 no, I, I'm just an agent of chaos. That is all I like to bring to the table. <laughs> oh, uh, it's first season of True Detective as far as no monsters. The monsters, to my mind, are were piles of, of sort of terrible results of rituals, right? So yes. you, had, you had these really creepy bodies positioned in certain ways, and then you had the, the, the sort of, um, you know, the thing at the end with the, but it wasn't 
animate. Wasn't he had it? allusions to, you know, yes. uh, the king in yellow broadly fits into the Cthulhu mythos. Right, right. But it's, it's Lovecraftian without any monsters, as an, as an example. I, I, I'd, say, I'd say it's much less Lovecraft and much more a mashup of, of Chambers and Ligotti. I, I saw very little Lovecraft in, in uh, True Detective, but I saw a lot of Ligotti. Yeah, but as an and, example and actually, of a monsterless monster. Well, I, I mean, yeah. that, actually, that's the point I was about to make. If you want to see what Lovecraft without monsters looks like, read Ligotti. Uh, that, that, that's, I, I couldn't think of a simpler definition for Ligotti than Lovecraft without monsters, but yeah, that's, that's him. When we get back to Paul's trope about, you know, the, the humans themselves are the monsters or we are the monsters, whenever you get down to Ligotti as well, just because, I mean, it's dark. And I think mainly because it, it forces you to look, it doesn't give you an external thing that you can blame. You know, in a Lovecraft story, it's like, oh, it's Cthulhu, or it's Narlathotep, or something. In that, it's, oh, it's Bill down the street. And for some reason, in that sense, it's almost more frightening, at least personally. Well, except I think in the, you know, a lot of the cases we've talked about there, it is still Bill down the street. It's just Bill down the street has maybe realized what he truly is inside because of these unwanted revelations. Isn't it closer to home? Isn't it not Bill down the street anymore? It should be Trevor in his bedroom upstairs, in your house. Yeah. Or, or because it's another person, you can actually relate in some senses to it. Maybe not entirely or understand entirely, but just because you can relate on a personal level to someone else, it might be more frightening in that sense. Yeah, well, and also, because we've talked about the erosion of sanity there, I guess the horror that you're building towards in Call of Cthulhu is the fact that ultimately that's you as well. Yeah. The horror is you? Yeah. 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 Or at least, you know, it, it's going to become you. As, well, as, 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 as you stop being able to lie to yourself about what reality is, right. you, know, you, you end up becoming complicit in the whole thing, swallowed by it. Back at the end of the 20th century, the BBC um, did a, um, a program. Uh, One-off, I don't think it's ever been shown again. They had, they had um, what they would term as masters of horror collected together for a dinner and a discussion. And I remember that John Carpenter was there uh, and, and other horror writers, I can't remember the others who were there. And they basically were tasked to kind of decide what is the, the horror for the new millennium? What is, the, what is, what is it? And uh, they very, very quickly decided that it's, um, you know, to, to catch it all in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a recognizable form was the, um, um, Jekyll and Hyde. It was the personification, the horror within. Mm. Yeah. And it just that you were going in that direction as well. And, um, you know, the great minds of horror, literature and film were kind of going in that direction. And I think, you know, that's ultimately where, wherever you take horror, it ultimately will always end up at that point because the most horrific thing that can happen is when it happens to you, not because of somebody else, but because of what you well, it's, are. It's, it's, it's not even when it happens to you, it's when it changes. That's what I mean, that's what yeah. I'm trying to say. When, it's when, when you recognize yeah. it's within you in that sense, perhaps. When you say that, I'm finding myself nostalgic for a time when the horror, the, the, the top horror is the one from within. Uh, I think it's changed since now. Uh, to be external horrors and, and uh, fear, sure. fear of other has, has certainly become very present since 
beginning of the 2000s. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like we're probably at a good point yeah. for yeah. taking external questions in from the audience. Right. Yeah. External horrors. Hello. I wanted to touch back on uh, the idea of the misinterpretation of external stimuli, uh, but from a point of view of cultural and linguistic uh, perception. So if you had people who came from different linguistic or cultural backgrounds and they had that specific filter, um, do you think that would be good motivation for these disparate interpretations of, of mythos stimuli, and how could you spin that out into something more horrific? Yeah. Well, have, have you read the, the comic um, The Courtyard uh, by Alan Moore? Uh -huh. Because they, there's, a, there's a lot there about sort of the, the um, in that case, it's, it's the effect of ACLO, the language and the you know, interpretation of it, and the fact that um, you know, it's, it's almost, what is it, what is it the Sapo-Whorf hypothesis, the fact that language sh sh you know, shapes perception. Um, and it's that applied to the mythos. So yeah, it's, it's the fact that you're thinking in these alien languages or experiencing these alien languages fundamentally changes you. Uh, we, we saw that recently in the film Arrival as well, uh, and yeah, I think that you know that, that's that's certainly something that it would be you know wonderfully horrific to explore in a Call of Cthulhu game. Uh, so I just want to touch back on the you know the topic of which was what makes the game a crack, which um, when I think about it, it's more of a sense of it's I'm more for saying the grand difference. Right, but when you go back to Call of Cthulhu, what makes a game Call of Cthulhu, right? It's that willingness of your your troop, your group of players to stand against that indifference. Because the thing is, at the end of the day, it's still indifference, no matter what. What you do, what does it really affect your life? You know, and in the immediate, it doesn't. It's just that you delay things further, you stop things from going a little further. Yeah. You know, uh, to use a comparison to one of my favorite games from White Wolf, which was Hunter, it's picking up that torch and holding the vigil because someone has to, because if nobody picks it up, then the world is destroyed immediately. It's about getting that extra generation, that extra, you know, keeping it alive for everybody else, you know, with, by, you're sacrificing yourself to do it. I think one thing that we need to say, though, is that it's not necessary that they know that they're doing that. So when you're an investigator, we call them investigators, ensure that they're here's the story, whatever. But it's not necessary that the characters actually have any idea of what they're going up against. They know that something has to be done, or they might have just fallen into a situation that puts them into a spot, and you're pitting morality against the player versus character, really. And so you're, you leave it up to them as to whether most 90% of the people out there will default into that position where they're going to they're gonna do that. But the character itself, or your player character, doesn't have to actually have any idea of what they're actually doing. Yeah, they don't need the scope for it. And in a lot of cases, it could be just that they see an immediate thing that is necessary. And, and I absolutely agree with you that that's my interpretation. That's what makes Call of Cthulhu the most heroic of the role-playing games, is that you're not gaining power, you're not doing this for accumulation, you're going up against these things and standing against the darkness knowing that you will eventually be devoured by it, but you're able to 
reset that clock for another day, that was worth it. I don't think. Um, coming back to the idea of monsters, you know, when you talk about tangible monsters in, in, in some way, usually something that have sort of bothered. But there's other types of monsters that we don't get into in the games quite often. Uh, being entities that spin into existence almost of their own core, looking at things like what happens when a mob gets together. And then there's, there's no conscious thought that we're going to become a rampaging mob. But it almost becomes something, uh, a creature, an entity that has a very simple goal of rampaging. So it's, it's made up of, of the, the parts of the people involved without any conscious volition. Yeah. And those kind of intangible <laughs> creatures and, and, and sources and entities that kind of they're the something practical we can look at in the future. Absolutely. I love I like that. that. I love yeah. that. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan Eldon uh, was a, a, a photojournalist, and I don't remember when it happened in the late '80s or early '90s. But he was he was killed uh, while on assignment. But he said before he went to the assignment that the most terrifying thing in the, on this earth is a mob, um, and then he was killed by a mob. But that that that's what I'm talking about with with um, decentralized cults or you know mm -hmm. sort of group think. But you can decentralize it, and it can't. There is some kind of emergent property that happens with humans that makes them do. In which uh, I don't know creates the environment, and because I don't want to displace blame, the people who do these things are, are to blame. But that is a mystery that that happens. That violence can be like a firestorm that where the fuel, you know, the oxygen level of, of the fire, you know, it can't be put out essentially. I, I'd say if you want an um, inspiration for how that could be handled in a Lovecraftian way, sort of mixing that human horror with alien influence, uh, Nigel Neal's Quatermass in the Pit. Oh, yeah? Uh, that, that, that is pretty much the theme of the whole thing, and that's the culmination of it. Mm -hmm. I think it, also that question sort of raises what we, you know, you don't have to use monsters from the canon, from the, you know, the role-playing game book. But equally, it's very easy just to make up, you know, a, another monster that's a bit like a shoggoth, he's got tentacles and, you know, whatever. It's just, yeah, that's great, but, but to sort of just try to be really creative. I mean, what you, you're sort of describing there with the mob or whatever, and sort of think, you know, what, what is it? I sometimes sort of focus on myself and think, what is it that focuses, what is it that scares myself? And like you were saying, Chad, about, you know, can we use our own fears, prejudices, and, and whatever it may be, and, and with sensitivity kind of make those manifest in the game in some way. And, and you know, that, that doesn't have to be a physical monster. It could be, it could take any, any form, really, perhaps something none of us have thought of yet. There's and, a movie from a few years back, it's called Pontypool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the same concept, though. You yeah. could easily take that virus, instead of making it a virus, it's an actual monster and it's it's completely intangible but it's transferred via language that can just infect everyone as they speak to one another and eventually you'll have that mob mentality again and then but who's in control is it the mob or is it this other entity is it a separate entity on each person or is it a giant you know collective and that's where you get your decentralized it's just a way of putting it in terms of the game where you can justify doing some really horrific things even if you go back to the, um, the Call of Cthulhu story itself, you've got the line about the great old ones will usher in a time where it will teach humanity new ways of killing. Well, 
we have this example, that's what the mob does. And I think the great old ones would be sitting back, uh, writhing their fingers going, excellent, you're learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what if that thing, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I'm struggling with is this uh, monsters, we love monsters. I'm not sure if having monsters means we're punching up or punching down, <laughs> but I feel like we are indulging our joy in essentially in xenophobia, in othering, mm-hmm. by giving ourselves this safe way of making an other that we don't have to feel bad about punching in either direction. I guess I'm sort of trying to... I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, whether you consider that to be a problem depends on whether you, you see that as being kind of fostering negative behavior or, you know, giving an outlet to something that is there within each of us anyway. Um, you know, if it's the latter, it's, I mean, it, it, it almost becomes like, you know, earthing static electricity, you're discharging it in a safe way. We're we using a punching bag instead of... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's interesting to examine it. I mean, is it possible to write a scenario where you become sympathetic to the Shoggoth? Mm-hmm. You know, or, or... Well, the Shan are only trying to get home. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I, think, I think it's very interesting to take a look at that and see where the story might go to, to try to examine the othering of... Well, I guess it was, I mean, maybe part of the question is, can we ever, if we can't understand it, if it is literally impossible to understand, does it have to remain another? Right? You know, is that just mm-hmm. the fact that because we are stupid, or whatever, because we are weak, that would be that, and there's nothing we can ever do about it. That may, be, that may be something there, which is interesting, because then we can start thinking about what we can understand and what we can bring into our world versus... Externalizing. Are, well, are, are, we, are we, I mean, we always take this assumption that we are, we are separate to the mythos. Right, exactly. It's never, it's never said that we are. Right. No one's ever said that we are or that we well, are. There's not evidence that we are. There's a lot of evidence, the way that humanity works is that we are. Well, in Lovecraft's work, where well, did humans come from? Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. Apologies for our failure to record the voices of the audience. I've done my best to boost the volume, but regrettably, much of the questions are inaudible. Well, I think that's, that's the great thing. And to me, that's what makes Lovecraftian things Lovecraftian. Is, uh, it's regardless of the internal or external threat, it's our humanity that we are always trying to apply logic to something that's illogical. So it's a knowing situation, but we're always going to try and apply that human logic to something that isn't possible to use your logic on. And you, know, you can only take that so far um, and feel some sense of accomplishment until you hit that point where our minds can't understand it. Well, we've got time for one quick final question. <laughs> can each of you in a sentence, assuming you don't already, which do you think is which deity would you worship? Assuming we don't. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Dan? Oh, you'd have to start on the side. Come on, um, quick fire. <laughs> Go on, just say it. I... Uh, Azathoth. Merf. You might as well Gnarly. go to the source. <laughs> Merf. Gnarly. 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 Uh, Chognarfon, I, uh, the, the <laughs> elephant in the room.
<laughs> the King in Yellow, because I want to dance for eternity and see everyone go crazy. Cthulhu! <laughs> and Shubnigarath for me, I'm afraid. I'm all about the pseudopods. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, well, that's been an education. <laughs> All right, guys, take us out. Both of our shows love to hear from our listeners, and there's going to be all the ways to reach out to us in the show notes for both of our shows. Okay, well, that's it for today. So it's good afternoon from me. A tutelure from me. See you guys. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Thanks for joining us for this great new episode. Class is dismissed! <laughs> That's creepy as hell. <laughs> <laughs> Who released the Mygo? <laughs> I have no idea what that is, but it is awesome. Whoa, unexpected thrill. How many of these damn things are there? There's like two bags of them. Wow. You can go now. <laughs> Quick before they say all right. Oh shit. Mm-hmm.